0: I haven't seen Waving Grass, Iowa, but it sounds beautiful, I can say that.
1: That's today's guest, Iowa State University Choir Director James Rohde, about to give some practical advice to choir teachers in small-town USA. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire, here with Steve Shanley.
2: Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education, with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about today's guest. James Rohde is the director of choral activities at Iowa State University, where he conducts the Iowa State Singers, 140 voice Iowa Statesmen, and teaches choral conducting and literature. Since his appointment at ISU in 2000, the choral program has grown to include roughly 400 undergraduate choristers. Choirs under his direction have toured internationally and been honored with performances at several distinguished music conferences including the american choral directors association and national collegiate choral organization conferences his works have been published by hal leonard santa barbara and other publishing companies and since 2003 he's been the artistic director of the des moines choral society find james full bio show notes and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. what was a high point for you in this interview alan
1: i read an article a while ago in jrme the journal for research and music education It was many years ago, but it was about how effective rehearsals tend to involve three things. Less director talking, short warm-ups, and one-minute downtime breaks between rehearsal segments. Rhody confirms the value of these simple, easy-to-implement practices. What about you,
2: Steve? I appreciated how he was able to share his tips for working with the skilled voices in his university choirs, but he could also very quickly pivot to share what he does when working with students who aren't quite as developed.
1: Yes. His point that any musician at any level can be expressive and use good tone is one of my favorite bits. Let's get to our conversation with James Rhodey. Jim Rhodey, welcome to the program.
0: It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
2: Well, you've probably had more groups selected for national level conference performances than any other choral conductor in the country. And obviously, a successful choir is going to be skilled in many areas like tone quality, expression, appropriate music selection. But I'm curious if you think there are one or two areas where you particularly excel and help your groups stand apart from others.
0: I'm not sure (laughs) uh, that my group stands out so much from others, but thanks for asking that question. But I would just say that when I get in with them, I ask them to work on my top three priorities that I have in every rehearsal. And not just every rehearsal, but on every note that they sing. So number one, that it's in tune. And number two, that their tone is try to make it drop dead gorgeous. And number three, that they're really expressing the meaning of the music. So intonation, beauty of tone, and expressivity. Those are kind of the three words I put on the board. And I ask them whenever they're singing, those three things should be front and center. I'm working on those three aspects of the music in the first rehearsal of the year. Um, I do think, you know, a choir should be expected to sing in tune, and they should be able to sing expressively. So there's two of the three things I mentioned, but I do think that the tone of a choir sets them differently. What does that choir actually sound like? And that invites the listener's ear. When I send my stuff to ACDA, I think variety is important. But I think if you have a slow, fast, uh, just a variety, maybe some cultural, uh, multicultural aspect of it, that seems to be best.
2: When you're sending in, are you then thinking about that a beautiful tone might be different depending on the repertoire? And, and you're making a conscious change, or does the Iowa State choir have a certain tone and it's going to pretty much be that way, regardless of the genre?
0: That's a good question, because I have tried and I've kind of believed over the years that, you know, when you sing a different style, the choir should sound different. And that was kind of my belief. But then when I'm in rehearsal and I'm working on it and then I listen to the recordings, you know, my ear guides me to a certain place. And I end up, though I believe there should be differences, the differences that I, my ear hears are rather slight from one piece to, to another, because my ear goes toward that vowel, my ear goes to the pitch, to balance in the choir. It would be nice to say that, boy, listen to the variety I have. But in the end, when I, when I listen to it, I don't have that much variety. And I don't know if I should be apologetic about that or not.
2: So let's talk about the practical part of this first second third rehearsal when you said right away you're working on these things. So does your ear pick up on I have a clear rhythmic issue here and a cl- but I'm going to let that go for a second and focus on on these top three, you're hearing rhythmic or other precision issues that might need to be addressed eventually. And you're just prioritizing those other three things. How does that kind of go through your brain? Or is it just does it just all happen naturally?
0: Those three things just naturally happen because my ear catches on to those. As you mentioned rhythm, for example, I didn't mention rhythmic quality as one of my important aspects. But if you don't have the right rhythm, you don't have the right pitch. So, I mean, if people are changing at the wrong spot, you don't have the right pitch at that at that moment. Rhythm is tied onto the word intonation pretty closely. You know, we might in rehearsal to get things going with a piece, tap each other on the shoulder while we're singing and uh, just to have a rhythmic quality in the room. Those are aspects I will employ.
1: Is that something that you do frequently, the tapping on the shoulder, or is that something that you reserve for uh, special occasions when they're having trouble?
0: I would say that it's going to be when I feel I need it. If I, if I hear that there's a rhythmic issue, that's been one of the techniques that's really proved to be pretty helpful.
2: Your top audition ensembles at Iowa State probably enter the room with some skills beyond those found in a typical middle or high school choir. But I know you also have plenty of experience working with choirs where the students are maybe a little earlier, shall we say, in their musical journeys. So when you're working with students who aren't as developed vocally and musically, I assume that these are the same three top priorities. Do you approach it a little bit differently when they're a little earlier or maybe not quite as refined versus when you're working with your top group at Iowa State?
0: I would think that with the younger singers, yes, rhythmic accuracy comes in. Getting a rhythmic accuracy is important to me. And also, you know, I do this, I guess, with every choir. And that is just to talk about the meaning of the music and that they feel like they've got something really to say.
2: I'm curious how you structure the beginning of your rehearsals. Some teachers feel the warm-up is extremely important vocal exercises, while others think that the time is precious and want to dive right into the literature. How do you approach it?
0: Well, I approach it a little bit with both. I don't do standard warm-ups. Depending on the day, I may do some. Uh, When we come in to sing a concert, I always do some vocal exercises, in part to get the range going, but in part to get their ears going, and just to get a sense of what some of these vowels are that we worked on, and try to draw their thinking as well as their, um, you know, their vocal mechanism together as a choir. Getting back to the uh, uh, warm-ups, I'll take a piece of music that I think could be used as a warm-up. I might want to be working today on. My concept is, as I'm thinking about my rehearsal coming up, that I want to work on how to sustain a line and keep a steady dynamic through it. Well, I'll pick a piece that I'm thinking about that uh, where that need is. I'll pull out a passage or two from that and I'll start with those passages and just then connect in with the music. So there in a way there's a slight there's a slight warm up with that. Might be a mental warm up. I might close a rehearsal just because of the way the rehearsal went with a piece that's sustained. It's not an upbeat piece, but it's something really beautiful. And the next day, I might just say, I might take them right back to that moment. And so their minds are already fixated on where we left that last rehearsal. It just takes a matter of seconds, and they're like, Oh yes, I remember this from the other day and they almost just pick it up and go from there. I do stay away from starting with something that's, you know, got a range issue. I'll do some warm-ups at the beginning of the year, but from then on I just have not found that it's been that productive for me.
2: So let's think about your music majors at Iowa State who are going to graduate and become choir directors at a middle school or high school, do you think they can take the same approach where they do little or no warm-up and can use primarily the repertoire as the warm-up, or in those settings where there maybe aren't the skills, they haven't had lessons, maybe they would need to spend a little bit more time? What do you recommend to your students who ask, should I be kind of doing the same thing when I'm at Waving Grass, Iowa, teaching my choir?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen Waving Grass, Iowa. It sounds beautiful. I can say that. But I would say that in that situation, they're going to have to employ some warm-ups. And I'm, I've encouraged them to uh, make up their own. They can take a piece and pull something out of it and use that as a means of getting the piece going. No question. But yes, at that younger age, they're going to need to get some concepts, but not brainless warmups. not just da 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 over and over again, like, here we go. A piano player just plays them and they sing along. Uh, I'm not a fan of that uh, at all. I have seen some junior high choirs that have brought me to tears with how they can do things. It's just amazing things. I know the year takes time to develop. I understand that. But you know, I just have a lot of admiration for those choir directors at the junior high level that are, are getting the ears starting to work and doing some things vocally and training them so that they have a great career in high school and high college and beyond.
1: And maybe that's because they're engaging in those three basic rules because seventh graders can sing in tune, they can sing with a beautiful tone, and they can sing expressively. And so maybe those are directors who, instead of picking the most difficult or trendy literature, stay focused on those three things. Kids, kids like to sound good.
0: Yeah, they do. And, and I'm a fan of finding music that's appropriate and making it beautiful.
1: So
2: you mentioned uh, one technique of starting a rehearsal where you left the previous rehearsal. And I'm curious if you have other techniques you use to keep your students inspired or engaged in rehearsal. And this is especially because I've heard a lot of choir teachers say that being bored can cause you to sing flat. And whether or not you agree with that, I'm guessing you don't want your students to be bored in your rehearsals. So what other things have you found work well to keep them engaged? <laughs>
0: yeah, right. Well, the thing of flatting, um, if a singer sings in a healthy way, focusing the tone and good breath, I do still think that there is another aspect to singing in tune and that's your ear. And so I do think that some intervals need to be really, really be watched. I'll quickly mention them to you. Uh, the descending half step, the descending minor third, and the ascending whole step. And those are the three that I've asked my singers to really watch. And uh, if they watch those, I feel like a lot of other things uh, fall into place.
2: And just, just so I understand, those tend to be flat if we're not careful?
0: Those tend to be flat if we're not careful, sure. But uh, as far as boredom goes, I someone has told me that when I rehearse, the rehearsal seems to fly by and that I move things along quickly. And it's not that I go in micromanaging things and saying in my rehearsal plan that we're going to spend two and a half minutes on this aspect of this piece, and then we're going to spend 30 seconds on this issue, and now two minutes on this and laying it out that way. I really don't. But as far as the boredom thing goes, I let them sing through sections, and as soon as they're done, I've got something to say, And when we're done with a piece, I give them a minute to just to relax or to make some comments to their neighbor. And I think that I just have the same expectations each day. And I think they come in and know that I've got those same expectations. I also try to create an an atmosphere, I think, where they take ownership in the process and they take ownership in the product. So they're invited to raise questions if they would like. I don't micromanage these things. I know that I'm going to be making mistakes or that I don't hear something that they're hearing. And I invite them to raise the question. They're hearing something. I say, great, let's check that. I can sense if things are getting a little soggy and I just I'm willing to change direction and say, let's just, you know, this isn't going well. Put this away. Let's go to another piece.
2: How do you go about allowing singers to use their own natural voice, but still fit into the sound of your group? Does physical placement of the singers play a part in this process, for example?
0: Oh, yeah. I've got three words on the board the first day as well, and they are breath, space, and focus. And so I want them to know that they're going to have breath for tone. They're going to have space for beauty, and they're going to have focus for that individuality and carrying power and clarity that makes their voice unique. So as we start singing, I ask for some flexibility along the way. I let them sing out a bit first. And there'll even be some students about in the fourth week or so will come up and say, you know, and these are former members, I mean, returning members, you know, we're just not quite getting, you know, this just isn't quite in tune here, whatever. And I say, okay, I know that, just give it some time. And these things seem to just sort of evolve as time goes on where, you know, the final product that we actually have is certainly different than what we're listening to right now in week four, five, and six. So I'll start asking for purity of pitch or to center the pitch, you know, with some flexibility. I guess one of the main issues with flexibility is vibrato. And so I don't say a lot about vibrato in using that word. I will on occasion. But I generally ask them to give a, maybe a pur- pure pitch or to center the pitch or I listen for the uniformity of vowels and really, really having us try to match the same vowel because without those two things, you don't have a unison. So, But going back to your question about choir formation, yes, uh, this is really, really uh, a major part of it. And I will switch seating arrangements throughout the year. I will put them where I think they're going to be the best for them as singers and for me as listening to the whole. And then as I hear a voice sticking out here and there, I switch them. And the students know I'm just going to be doing that. And that happens often. Things I consider would be height. And that's not just the taller people shouldn't be in the front row, but that if singers can be next to someone of a similar height, they're going to Sing better. They're going to have a more connected sound. Vocal quality enters in. Uh, the caliber, like how loud they sing, what, you know, they can sing rather full. I voice color. If it's reedy or more fluty, I place them in different positions that, that way. Certain stu- students have more musicianship skills. They're really good at sight reading or really good with intonation or really good with tonal memory. They're going to be spaced throughout the choir. I don't put all of them together, but I put I try to spread those out. Someone's poise and personality plays a part in where I place them. Uh, leadership qualities, or maybe they've got a lot of experience in singing in choir. Just a lot of things come into play. And I just place them throughout the group. I try to spread those qualities uh, throughout instead of having them next to each other.
2: And that goes for... So you don't have all of the reedy voices all in one area or all of the fluty voices in one area. You try to spread them out. The students with a lot of poise or presence, they are also spread out. In general, it's not having a concentration of any one type of voice or student or personality or all together.
0: You are right about that. They're a real, a real reedy voice or one that has a real presence. They're going to be uh, just kind of spattered around, probably not in row one. And in all likelihood, not in row two, but in a four voice choir, they're going to probably be in rows three and four, but next to people where I think they're going to influence them in a positive way.
2: Well, this leads well into balance. I wanted to ask how you generally approach that. Do You have the same number of singers on each part, or do you typically assign more students to certain parts? Do you have that pyramid philosophy of more support from the lower voices or more of an equal kind of cylindrical approach?
0: Yeah, there are uh, certainly times in the music when, when I do have a pyramid approach, maybe at the conclusion of a piece where the low basses are there, sopranos are in the mid register. Yeah, I like more bass fiddle than piccolo, for sure. I think balance, first of all, is one of the unsung heroes of choral music. I have different different ensembles, you know, like the Iowa State Singers they are a group of, let's say they're about 70 members. And if I if I have my pick, it's just probably going to be pretty well divided between all four sections. Uh, maybe a little stronger in the bass as far as numbers go, and maybe a little bit overbound, more soprano than alto, not by much. I like those pretty equal. Well, let's see. Let's say if I had 35 men in the choir, 35 tenor basses, if I had 15 tenors and 20 bases, I'd be very pleased with that, with that balance right there. Or or 14 and 21 would be would would be just just fine. I think I can find beauty in, you know, regardless of, of the numbers, I just think it's my job. Or it's my job to work it out so that there is a good balance.
2: I think that's the important thing for our listeners to hear, because I think sometimes people might hear your group and think. Well, yes, if I were directing a top university group, I would be able to do this and that and not have to worry, but to hear that you are still addressing some of the very same things that our middle and high school choir directors are, where we don't have the perfect number or the perfect spread of ability levels, and that you're solving so many of the same issues that they are, uh, I think maybe you just make it look a little bit easier uh, than, uh, than it is for some of the rest of us.
0: Well, I I can tell you that regarding this balance thing, uh, I have found that once, you know, if you just, if you create a a balance on a chord or just a passage, you know, two or three notes, and the students hear that, they never go back. They never go back to where they were because they just, they've heard it, they love it, and they'll, they'll always go for it.
2: Well, I've heard from some choir directors that you are known for asking your groups for a short I in their sound. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and I have to be honest, I'm a band guy. I don't really know exactly what that means. So can you break down what that is and why you do it, please?
0: There are three vowels in particular. Eh, eh, eh. And I have my choirs uh, remember those three vowels by saying, okay, someone just came out of the hills and you go up and ask him, hey, have you had breakfast yet? And he says, et at eight. And if they can remember at at eight, then they've got those 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 three vowels. So uh what it amounts to is instead of saying at, you can sing at like eh, with a free open sound. There's nothing wrong with that. But if I put a little short I into it, eh, as opposed to. Eh, Eh, and you can feel the sound come from the jowls up into more like like instead of feeling like there's a uh, oh a pancake in your mouth, you can feel more like there's a Hershey's kiss in your mouth, and you're shooting a your tone right to the top of that. And so, if you can do put that little i sound into the into those vowels, uh, I think it 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 brings maturity to the tone it brings uniformity to the choir, um, it has a better pitch, it's more clear, it carries more, it's just all the things that my ear wants to hear just happen if they'll put that color in there. And you can actually do that with, if an e-vowel, which is how I build my choirs, I build my choirs on a, on a nice e-vowel to start with. If the e-vowel feels a little, a little tight or flat or spread you can add a little short I actually to that e like on the word "curia." I might say "ki" as opposed to Ki, Ki Just to put a little "i" there to warm the sound. But I've been doing that for years and years. It's just brought the tone together. It's mature. I don't know why a lot of people don't do it, but that's what I do. And I've just been really happy with it.
2: So you had the the Latin example with the Kyrie. Any other common words, either in Latin or English, where you could give just a couple more examples, and especially of of it uh, sounding maybe wrong to your ears first, and then what the short i does. I think that would be very helpful.
0: Yeah, if I uh, and if this just works with any old vowel. Let's say I went singing, and if you were just sing, I went. I went, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I went, I went, I
2: went,
0: I went. I went. And the other thing that I'll do, I meant I said the word singing, because the other thing I'll tell the students that if you're singing a short eyeball, vowel, sing, if, what do you add to the word sing, to make it pretty, and to give that focus. And someone will invariably say, add short eye. And I say, no, it's, it is a short eye. Now, what do you add? And uh, what they'll add is a little E color to that. I went singing is one open way to do it. I went singing. Nothing wrong. But I would ask for, I went singing. I went singing, and if I watch the tone in my mouth, I ask students, put your eyes in your mouth and watch where that tone is going. When you're going from the word went to sing, is the placement of that tone changing? I went singing, and if it's changing, try to have it not change. Try to feel like there's a consistency uh, from one vowel to the next. Now, what's going to be hard to feel. In that consistency, is when you sing an ah vowel, for example, can you still feel that same, similar placement on an ah vowel? Ah, 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 That's tough to do, but that's the journey we're going to take. Is building off of that e e e feeling, Keep feeling that focus and that consistency in tone. Now start to spread to other vowels, but don't lose that consistency. I'm talking about consistency of tone, probably every rehearsal.
2: As you said, that seems like it makes a great deal of sense. And there are so many things in music education that make a great deal of sense. And yet a lot of people aren't doing them. So hopefully we can spread it. Can we put you on the spot with a few lightning round questions, Jim? If you must. (laughs) All right. What's the best place to eat in Ames, Iowa?
0: (laughs) Maybe my house. But uh, outside of that... I end up going to the cafe every once
2: in a while. Is there a musical artist or a piece of choral music, a composer that you wish more people knew about or maybe programmed with their groups?
0: A composer that has spoken to me through his music is Eriks Eschenwalds, a Latvian composer.
2: Do you have a book recommendation for our listeners, preferably one that doesn't have anything to do with music or teaching?
0: We Die Alone by David Haworth. We Die Alone. It's a true story about World War II and a a Norwegian. I'm all Norwegian, so that's why they recommended it to me. But apparently it's it's a fascinating true story about how someone got through the war. So
2: how can a student new to the Iowa State Choir program make an excellent impression on you? Uh,
0: The way they walk in the room uh, for that audition, Uh, just the way they'll greet you, maybe what by what they're wearing. And just showing a little bit of their personality. They're engaging and they're, they're willing to laugh. Dude, I should have mentioned that earlier as a part of the boredom question that you had. Is that if I can have one good laugh in each rehearsal, I'm happy about that.
2: And finally, if you weren't a music teacher, what career do you think you might have had?
0: Uh, I've asked myself that before. And I can't come up with an answer. I didn't sing in high school because, you know, back then, you had only a certain number of hours in the day. You had your six hours and you had five hours in people, what you had to do. And you had one hour to choose or something else. And when your parents buy you a trombone, you play the trombone. So that was my choice. So I went on to college and someone told me to sing in the choir. And I said, okay, I'll audition for the choir. Somehow I got in, but it turned my life upside down. I had never felt such, such a means of personal expression that poured out of me that I'd never... I'd never experienced before, and with that, I had blinders on. Uh, you know, this is what I'm going to do. So, uh, unfortunately, having thought about this, I have no idea what I would do if I <laughs> if I wasn't if I wasn't working with a choir. I don't know what else I would do. That's going to be a challenge for me. You know, when it comes uh, when I'm turn eighty or whatever, it's going to be okay. Now, what are you going to do? Well, I don't know because. Choir has been my thing my whole life.
1: Well, it's been a great thing for you, James Rodia. Uh, a lot of us have been fans of, of, of the ensembles you've directed at Iowa State, and it was a joy to have you here today. Uh, it's been a gold mine of information. Thank you, James Rodia, for joining us today.
0: Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to chat about these things, and good questions. I mean, very good questions. Thanks.
2: You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing,
1: rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website,
2: www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or
1: via Twitter at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musiced insights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset
2: Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co College Music Education Program.
1: Learn more about them at our website. Let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list.
2: New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.